A little over 2,000 years ago, a baby was born to working-class parents in what was essentially the middle of nowhere, and yet everyone who learned about it went crazy. Angels appeared in the sky partying and singing and proclaiming good news. Shepherds dropped their work. They literally abandoned their sheep in the field to go see this baby. They hurried off. Wealthy scholars and astrologers and wise men from a far-off land invested months traveling to go see this baby and give him expensive gifts. Meanwhile, the local king, when he found out about it, went on a killing spree. That was the first Christmas. Now, when it comes to Christmas, we still drop everything and hurry off like the shepherds. We hurry off to Christmas parties and stores. We still give expensive gifts to each other. We still travel long distances to visit families. And this time of year is incredibly busy because we do all of those things every year, year after year. And the question is, why do we do this to ourselves? Right? Why do we try so hard to prepare for the perfect Christmas? What's all the fuss about? This is the question that we are looking at all of Advent. We started last week as we looked at the ultimate victory of good over evil and the role Christmas played in that. We will continue looking at this question all the way through Christmas Eve. And this morning we are going to be looking at what it is they got those kings and angels and priests and shepherds and wise men so excited that very first Christmas. We're going to be looking at a very old prophecy, one that had grown to have tremendous significance in the ancient world. And we're going to see how it intersected with other prophecies in the Old Testament and, and then the reality of the birth of this baby in the middle of nowhere, the birth of a radically new kind of king. So our passage this morning is Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It's slightly ironic as we light the peace candle that we get to talk about crushing foreheads. Um, but believe me, in the end, it all works towards peace. Right? The, as, the, as the message goes on, we'll see peace does play into this. So this is part of the final prophecy of Balaam of Beor. He had been summoned by an enemy of the Israelites, paid a pile of money to, to curse them, and yet he wound up proclaiming God's blessing on them over and over again, right? So he basically got fired from his job of cursing. And he wound up with this sort of final prophecy, and he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. He shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And this prophecy, which dates from around 1400 BC, give or take a little bit, is speaking of a powerful leader rising up out of Israel. Right? Jacob is frequently used in the Old Testament as a synonym for Israel refers to this leader as a star and a scepter. And this prophecy was so significant, right? It seems like a quick thing that we might have glossed over, I'm sure, any of the half dozen times we've read numbers, right? 
But it was so significant and it was so clearly unfulfilled that combined with all the other Old Testament prophecies that were out there, the people of Israel had come to be waiting quite literally for God himself to be their king, to be their perfect king. They anticipated God's righteous reign, a reign that began at Christmas. So this morning we're going to examine both that anticipation and that beginning of God's reign on Christmas. Now first, the people of Israel anticipated God's righteous reign, which was symbolized by a star. In his prophecy, Balaam speaks of this man being distant, right? Not so much by location, but by years. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. He certainly didn't know who he was speaking of. He was given a prophecy by God. He doesn't know the details, but he did know he's not coming soon. And so he predicted a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The star and the scepter are symbols he is using to communicate the extraordinary nature of this man. The scepter was the traditional symbol of a king. All right, so he is making a prophecy about a king of great power who would conquer Israel's traditional enemies, including the people that Balaam is actually standing right amongst and giving a prophecy supposedly for. Right there on the list of people who get crushed. Some of those enemies are listed in verses 17 and 18. And so his conquest is going to usher in a time of peace and security for Israel. And what is the symbol for this mighty king? A star. And knowing full well that a king like this had not yet appeared by the first century B.C., this, this prophecy had kind of grown in the imagination and in the understanding of of the Israelite people. It was now widely understood to be describing the Messiah who was to come. I don't think they really knew what the star symbolized in the prophecy. I don't think they know quite what to do with it. They just know that it is tightly connected with Messiah. In fact, the connection was so strong that that some years later, there would be a Jewish rebel, rebel leader who's trying to get people to follow him as he rebels against the Romans. And so he changes his name to Bar Kokhba meaning son of the star, right? It's a marketing thing. He's advertising himself as, as the fulfillment of Balaam's prophecy. He's advertising himself as a Messiah. But over the 14 centuries between the prophecy and the birth of Jesus, the Bible had unfolded more. God had revealed more and more of his plan through his prophets, And so the people of Israel had come to understand that this was the beginning. This was the first of of several prophecies that would predict God's direct rule, his eternal, just, and righteous rule over Israel. So not only at this point were they anticipating a king, they were expecting a king unlike any they'd ever seen before. Now, he did still have to be descended from David because that was needed to fulfill God's covenant with with David back in 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And yet, while he was going to be born in the future, from the prophet's perspective, he was also somehow going to be tied to the very ancient past. 
Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So this Messiah, right, as, the, as God unfolds his plan, it turns out this Messiah is going to have to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be born in the future from Micah's perspective, and yet somehow he is from of old, from ancient days. He is tied to ancient prophecies, to promises, to kings. There's a lot of mystery going on as these prophecies are unfolding, right? They don't understand what they all mean, but they'll know when they see it. At least so they think. And then despite this prophecy of his very human birth in Bethlehem, somehow this king was also going to be eternal. He was going to be God himself. Because Isaiah 9, it begins by saying he's going to come from Galilee. But verses 6 and 7 read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now these words, mighty God and everlasting Father, would never have been used to describe a human king. So we've got something very interesting going on with this king that has been waited for for so long. Right? They are now clearly anticipating that this leader who's going to establish an eternal, a just, a righteous reign would be none other than God himself, yet somehow given as a child, a son. And then this God king would reign forever, increasing eternally in authority and peace and justice and righteousness. And then they go on to round out the picture more. Isaiah 11, 2 through 4. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And when the breath of his lips... He shall kill the wicked. That part might not be that peaceful. This eternal king descended from David. Right? We take these things together. Born in Bethlehem, yet somehow coming from Galilee. Bethlehem is not in Galilee. Would be the eternal and just God himself. He would nonetheless be full of the Holy Spirit. He would rule righteously forever. And he would be symbolized by a star. This is a very complex picture. By the first century B.C., the people of Israel could look back at all their kings, from Saul to Zedekiah, and it was clear. None of those guys were anything like that. At this point, they didn't even have a real king who is descended from David. And so they waited. Under the hobnailed sandal of Roman domination, they waited desperately for this Messiah to come, the one who would would finally set their world right. They waited eagerly for God's righteous reign to begin, a reign symbolized 
by a star. And that star rose at Christmas. 1,400 years had passed since Balaam's prophecy. And as you might imagine, anticipation was running a little high. The Jews, by this point, had been dispersed throughout many neighboring nations. They had taken with them their faith, their traditions, and their expectations for Messiah. And then suddenly something appeared in the night sky. A star, some sort of astronomical event that apparently signified the birth of a great king in Israel. We don't know specifically what it was that made it clear it was tied to a great king in Israel. We don't know specifically what type of phenomenon it was. But magi, wealthy, foreign, wise men, astrologers, sorcerers, scholars, they knew they had to go and see this king. Now, did they go because of Balaam's prophecy of a star rising out of Jacob? We don't know for sure. Right? What we do know about this prophecy is that by this time, Balaam's words were very high in the consciousness of Israel. They were widely interpreted as, as describing the Messiah, and that the Jews who had spread throughout the remnants of the Persian Empire would have taken this prophecy with them. They probably would have shared this prophecy with these scholars who like to collect wisdom from all the countries around. Whether this did or did not influence the Magi is sort of irrelevant. What we know is that a star appeared and it spurred these Magi to dramatic action. Matthew tells this story in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, that prophecy had to be born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. But whatever this star was, and people have speculated over it pointlessly for centuries, right? Was it a supernova? Was it a comet? Was it a planetary alignment? Was it an angel shining a light? Doesn't matter. We're never going to resolve it this side of heaven. Feel free to ask when you get there. Whatever it was, it rose in such a way that it told the Magi to start looking for this special king, this special Jewish king, to pay honor and respect to him, to get down on the ground floor of a new political arrangement. And not the language of the Magi. When they're talking to Herod, who is the king of Israel, right? He is the king of the Jews. He's wearing the crown. He's got the power. He's a homicidal maniac. They're talking to him. And they say very clearly, they're not looking for someone who would someday become a king. Right? They ask him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They say to him, the ruling king of Israel, where's the guy who is already king of the Jews? Matthew continues, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, as you might imagine particularly since he's paranoid. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, Herod was half Jewish. right? He was really ethnically a, an Idumean, not a, not a Jew. He was a Roman puppet who had ascended through the throne, through 
family connections and playing the political game extraordinarily well and by being extraordinarily vicious. A lot of violence. And he is quite troubled. Right, because not only were powerful foreigners here looking for a newborn baby who is apparently the rightful king of Israel, but worse than that, a star had risen. The symbol of Messiah now shone brightly in the night sky. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That's a lie. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so these wealthy, wise, pagan magi who had traveled for months finally arrived at Jesus' house. And what do they do? They humble themselves. They fall down before him. They give him valuable gifts. What's all the fuss about? Why would they do this? It's because after 1,400 years, the Messiah had finally come. After 14 centuries, all these confusing and apparently contradictory prophecies have been fulfilled. And already Jesus wore the crown. Now as an adult, he would proclaim God's kingdom is at hand. And he would work all kinds of miracles that prove it. And yet his formal coronation was yet to come. The time where he is formally and officially crowned king though he was the king his whole life. That came at the cross of Easter. Paul explains in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, how did this work? How did this babe in the manger come to rule over everything in heaven? Well, Jesus the Christ, who both the Magi at the beginning of his life and Pontius Pilate at the end of his life, rightly called the King of the Jews, stepped into this earth that very first Christmas. And he established a beachhead for God's kingdom. And then as he lived his life, as he grew up, as he taught and he preached, he did what he ultimately came to do. He voluntarily chose to go to the cross and die. He did it not just to be a symbol of martyrdom, but to pay the penalty, the vast and enormous penalty that each man, woman, and child, including you and me, has piled up through a lifetime of wrong choices, wrong words, and wrong actions. See, Scripture is clear. Every single person on this earth sins. We all fall short of God's perfect standard. There are times in each of our lives where we fall, where we fail. 
For some, it's more often than others. But for these purposes, that almost doesn't matter because Scripture is clear. Every sin separates us from God. Every sin is our personal rebellion against the righteous reign of the Creator who lovingly made us. Every sin requires that a penalty be paid to deal with it. And that penalty is the same for every sin. It is death. It is an eternity of separation from God who cannot tolerate the presence of sin. That is the bad news. And it is this bad news that Jesus Christ entered into this world to resolve. This is why he came to that manger. Because the good news is that because God loves us so much, that even when we were still set on sin, when we were set on disobedience to God's righteous reign, he sent Jesus into this world. That very first Christmas. Not just to be a cute, cuddly baby. Not just to be a good and moral teacher. Not just to be an inspirational leader. Not just to start a church movement. But more importantly, to be the perfect and innocent blood sacrifice required to turn aside God's rightful anger for each of our sins. Your sins and mine. Speaking of Jesus, John writes in 1 John 2.2, 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation, as I have mentioned before, right, is the sacrifice required to turn aside the righteous anger of God. And this propitiation, this forgiveness of sins, is something that Jesus makes freely available to anyone who confesses their sins to God and asks forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ, who, who turns to Him in faith as Lord and Savior. That's all that's needed. To seal his victory over sin and death and to raise him up as the king over all heaven and earth. God raised Jesus from the dead and he appeared first to his closest friends, to his followers, ultimately to over 500 people. Jesus of Nazareth, that, that tiny babe in the manger, the one that sits in our little nativities under our Christmas trees was raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God the Father. He is above all other powers and authorities. He is head over everything. Christ's righteous reign began at Christmas, but ultimately now he rules over every aspect of creation, good and bad. But does he rule over us? The most important question that we need to answer today is what does God's righteous reign really mean for us? See, at the very first Christmas, his reign was, was very clear, right? The pagan magi traveled for months. They fell down before him. They worshiped him and gave him gifts. That someday in the future, Christ's righteous reign is also going to be very clear. It's going to be very visible in the world. Everyone is going to visibly see his reign. Every knee shall bow. His righteous reign will be clear throughout the restored earth. But, but what about today? What about right now? What about right here? What about you? Does he reign in each of our lives? Is Jesus Christ your Lord? I want to be clear in my language. I'm not asking whether he's your Savior. For most people here, he is. 
right? Once he's our Savior, that never changes. He has purchased our freedom with his blood. His Holy Spirit has come into our heart. He has sealed us. He has guaranteed us. Our salvation is secure. We cannot unearn the thing that we never earned in the first place. But is Jesus Christ also the Lord of your life? That's something that varies from day to day as our commitment goes up and down. Does Christ reign over your heart? And if he reigns over your heart today while you're feeling pretty good in church, what about tomorrow when you're back at work or you're back in school? Will he still reign there? That's the question I want us to really wrestle with this Advent. So as we rush around these next few weeks, as we try to make every aspect of our Christmas season just picture perfect, is Jesus, that innocent little babe in the manger, now resurrected and perfected, is he our Lord? That's what he wants to be this holiday. That's what his sacrifice and his glory and his majesty and his power deserve. But while it would be really easy for us just to give a quick snap answer to this question, I want you to really take time to think about it. Time this morning, time for the rest of this week. Is Jesus the Lord of your life, and does he reign in your heart? See, someone or something is going to reign in your heart. That is how it works. That is a guarantee that something will rule in our heart. So who or what rules in your heart on a regular basis? What controls your life and sets your priorities? If it's not Jesus Christ, who or what is it? Is it yourself? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your friends? Is it your job? Is it money? Is it status? Is it comfort? Is it pleasure? Is it fitness? Is it beauty? Is it entertainment? What rules in your heart? There's only going to be one Lord in your heart. And if it's not Jesus Christ, it's going to be something like these I've listed. How can you tell? I think the easiest way to look is to consider how you actually use your time, your abilities, and your finances, your money. Are we giving freely of these things to Jesus? Do we work as hard for Jesus Christ as we work today for our teachers or our bosses or our parents or our spouses? Right? Are we giving God our best or does our best go to work, sports, home maintenance, call of duty? I don't mean the work, the, the military sense. I'm talking about the video game. If God asked you to make a radical change in your life or your lifestyle today, would you do it? If he asked you to drop something that you like, a lot. Would you do it? If he asked you to pick up something very intimidating and scary seeming, would you do it? And I'm not talking here about something that would contradict scripture. He's never going to call you to contradict his word. 
right? For those people who think they're being called to do something that goes against his word, they are not. Well, there's a calling, but it's not from God. But I'm talking about priority changes. I'm talking about lifestyle changes, career changes, address changes, financial changes. I'm talking about status changes, free time changes, hobby changes. Because every single believer in Jesus Christ has a ministry uniquely prepared for them. Right? Every person in this room, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a ministry for you. You're either doing it or it's waiting for you. To do it effectively, it has to be your priority. If you don't know what that ministry is, right, I want to urge you to start praying about that. Start reading God's Word, looking for that. Start talking to trustworthy Christian friends, pastoral team, and so forth to help you find it. And then when you know it, or if you already do, are you ready to do it? Is it really your priority? Will you follow God's leadership in your life? Does Jesus Christ reign in your heart? If not, I urge you to make that decision, to turn your life over to Christ's leadership and to not be afraid of it. Right? It can be intimidating, but don't, because Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? One of the reasons we don't get involved in ministries, we think we're so busy and so burdened now today, but he's saying, I get it. I will give you rest from all that. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, far more important than rest for our bodies. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this Advent season, I pray that we would all accept Christ's invitation, that we would yoke ourselves to him, that Christ's righteous reign would extend into every corner of our hearts, into every detail of our lives, and that that would be what the fuss is all about. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, his willingness to enter into this world as a tiny baby. The power and authority with which he walked as he walked this earth, and then his willingness to sacrifice himself to free us from slavery to sin and death. Now, Lord, for all of us who have taken the step of faith of putting our trust in Him as Lord and Savior, I pray that we would truly embrace Him as the Lord of our lives. Lord, help us to be faithful followers. Help us to turn over control of our life to Him. Lord, I pray that You would reveal to us areas in our lives that we have not yet surrender to him, though we have not yet turned over to his righteous reign. For you know that is why he came at Christmas, to reign forever. So in Jesus' name I pray, amen.